Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by my friend Sam Goldman for our second Whit Stillman discussion. We will be talking about his second movie, 1994's Barcelona. Sam and I have talked about the bourgeoisie, mid-century America, the good and bad in liberalism, the aspirations for a moral and perhaps more sophisticated way of life that's embodied in young college graduates, especially of the period, but not exclusively. And perhaps Barcelona is especially useful for that conversation because it confronts these young people, the urban haute bourgeoisie or what is left of this aspiring class with a very shocking and often very funny, but not entirely funny, consequences of the transformations of society in the 80s. Sam, I think you and I have a shared interest in this transformation of mid-century life, its promise and its strange notion that it would always be thus, so to speak, that things would only become more the way they were, which now looks so strange because, of course, the democratic shifts have proved more radical through culture as much as through technology in the intervening decades. But I think we also share a sneaking or even an open admiration, both for the art of Witt Stillman and for the kinds of people he describes. I've characterized them as earnest. I think you have been more gentle to them than I in speech. But there is much in them that is winning. And so perhaps it was inevitable that they would also have to confront Europe since aspirational Americans, aspirational classes were always comparing themselves with Europe in American history. So I think there's so much for us to talk about past and future and what of America is revealed in these interesting characters. But of course, first of all, we will have to go through the plot. Well, I think that as with many Whit Stillman films, the plot in this case is more of a pretext for the characters to engage in various conversations than it is a compelling story in its own right. But to the extent that there is a plot, it concerns two young men who are cousins of some kind who encounter each other in Spain where one of them, Ted, is working as a salesman for um, an international American manufacturing firm, and Fred is serving as a naval officer who has been dispatched by his fleet to conduct an advanced survey of the landscape. There is some suggestion that the last fleet visit was not successful, and Fred's job is to avoid problems this time around. And as we discover, he fails dramatically in that task. So the plot is partly about the contrast between these two characters who are presented as having a history of feuds going back to their childhoods. Ted is earnest in a particular American way. He is tormented by the thought that he does not have a calling for his job in sales, and he immerses himself in the American literature of salesmanship, Dale Carnegie and Benjamin Franklin, and so on. Fred is superficially cynical, but in a way that the actor Chris Eichmann, I think, depicts better than anyone else, is fundamentally a very earnest American patriot. So they're thrown together and various personal conflicts emerge. They are both on the hunt for women and they help and hinder each other in that quest. They are also searching for meaning in their lives, Ted through business and salesmanship, Fred through the military. And finally, they are Americans in Europe, their innocence abroad in the old Mark Twain, Henry James 
Scott Fitzgerald mode, as you suggest. And all of these strands are brought together when through a series of misunderstandings, Fred is accused of running a CIA operation on Spanish soil, and as a result, leftist terrorists of some kind attempt to assassinate him. And in this assassination attempt, which leaves Fred in a coma from which he eventually recovers, both he and Ted discover the truth about themselves. They discover their destinies in life. Ted, it turns out, is not really cut out for sales, but is destined for management. Fred rededicates himself, we are given to believe, to some kind of career in public service. If not in the military, then perhaps in the diplomatic service. He develops a friendship with the American consul in Barcelona. They find nice young women to accompany them on the journey of their lives, and they return to America again in the Mark Twain, Henry James model, wiser and perhaps a little bit sadder and less idealistic than they had been before, but also more mature and able to appreciate the gifts of their country, not naively, but as men of the world. And the, the film closes um, with Ted and Fred and their new Spanish wives at some vacation resort outside Chicago cooking hamburgers. And this is, of course, an iconic American scene, but Stillman presents it in his signature way as also a serious moral and aesthetic accomplishment. It is good and it is beautiful. And what struck me watching this film the other night for the first time in many years, I don't remember the last time I saw it, is how genuinely patriotic it is and also how genuinely religious it is. And one of the things that maybe we'll go on to talk about is how during the period when Fred is in a coma, Ted exchanges his rather superficial and intellectualized attempts to practice Christianity for a more personal and more genuine form of faith inspired by the, the miracle of Fred's survival. Yes, I think you're right. One of the wonderful things about with Stillman movies is how discreet they are, how things sometimes of great importance or fundamental human problems sneak up on you. I'm sorry to say that I think this must have hurt his career a great deal. When people speak about with Stillman's movies admiringly, few speak about them who do not admire them. They tend to praise the wit, the conversations, the sparkling stuff, and they mostly associated with erotic affairs, with love rather than friendship. And so one big deal, the friendship between men and the need men have of growing up and proving themselves largely in each other's eyes. Barcelona is all about that. Fred and Ted Boynton have to do this. It gets short shrift. But I think there's another side that gets even shorter shrift, if it's possible, what it is that makes these young men so idealistic. And I think you're right, religion in the one and patriotism in the other are the keys to the story. And yet his very discretion, in a way, hurts the popularity of these movies and may have hurt his career. It's partly because this was not fashionable, with Stillman's career was largely in the 90s, and patriotism was not really cool. Wit was not supposed to show you that you should take a second look at people who find faith, that there is something worthwhile and even admirable in such people. The very reputation for wit, in a way, hurts wit. I'm sorry for that, <laughs> but I think it proves the point in an awful way. <laughs> So watching the movie again, I was struck by the extent to which his entire style of movie making has this character of sneaking up on you. I think it's because talking to you, I watched Metropolitan and Barcelona again and saw them with fresh eyes. 
It's the first time I think about the fact that Whit Stillman is not just the writer-director, the artist, the independent movie maker. He's also the producer of these movies. He's also the man who has to make ends meet, to put together money, a few dollars here, a few dollars there, until he's got one of these small budgets to make a movie, which sometimes takes years. And that shows in the filmmaking. He is economical by necessity, but that is not merely that you have to show certain scenes, you have to show certain attractions in order to justify the project to producers as much as to audiences, but that it is also an economy required by the art. Barcelona matters because it's an odd mix of beauties and glories of Europe and the crazy, crazy cultural left of the post-war period something that Americans have next to no idea of, of course. And so Barcelona has a superficial and a deep interest. It suggests that Americans aren't just tourists, but they're looking for something. The way the movie is presented, the, what is shown, what is shot, where the story takes us, as well as the characters, these protagonists, Taylor Nichols and Chris Eigerman, the, these really funny actors, they go so well together precisely because they're a comic duo. When one is earnest, the other is wounded, and the other way around. And they have ways of hurting each other's feelings, even though they have very different personalities. One of them is moralistic, and the other one is quite immoral. And yet, they, they turn out to have the kind of boyish friendship and rivalry and jealousy. So they're very funny, but they're also a very good introduction to Barcelona because they are tame. They're not going to go do crazy things. In a vulgar sense, they are not interesting. They are not shocking. They are not glamorous. The movie makes a big deal out of this, that they have to only shocking lies can make them interesting to European women who are sophisticated to the point of rottenness in some cases. But this is the movie making altogether. We, we look at something that it turns out in a certain way could be dangerous from a very safe point of view. And that turns out to be not merely a requirement of movie making or of, of poetry or storytelling. You want to tell the story in a certain way that you don't encourage crazy ideas. There's always something moderating and decent about Whit Stillman's films. But it also seems to say that this is a requirement for seriousness. You should look at the world from the point of view of somebody whose feelings will get hurt. And when those feelings get hurt, he has a crisis of conscience. Only then can you see that what it means to a human being to go through these things, that it's not a story. It's not something you read in a paper. It's something moral. It's deeply moral. To wrap up this line of thinking about the movie making, as you said, the first half is much funnier and more episodic. The second half is much more put together, but it's not quite as funny because this terrible thing happens, terrorism. Terrorism appears from the first images, but it's in the background, a sort of odd things you would see on the TV news or in the newspapers. It's not personal. It's not real. Then it becomes personal and real, and all of a sudden things become more seriousness, but you also see what this does for characterization. Now, the terrorist attack on a USO club in Barcelona by some crazy local terrorists is real. This really happened in 87, and indeed, a serviceman was murdered. There were other victims, but they didn't die. But it's not just because it really happened, and therefore, it carries a power of conviction and reveals something you did not expect. It's also how, as you say, it reveals patriotism and faith. This is what it takes for these two young men, in a way, to become serious. The salesman, Ted, had not considered who he really is until he was forced to it. And he becomes not merely earnest, but more serious. He becomes a good friend and a plausible husband because of this. And of course, in another way, this is also required for his somewhat lackadaisical and errant cousin, Fred. In his case, he has to get shot in the head to become serious, which in a way is very funny and in a way is not. But I think it shows you this is real. And so that altogether, both the problem of America and Europe, what the hell has happened to the world in the 80s, but also the problem of character. What does it take for people to become serious? They're discreetly treated, but also for that very reason, they can be very open. You can write the story so that you don't have to simply say, yeah, this guy had to get shot in the head to become serious about life. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny that what you say is actually 
quite similar to what the late Roger Ebert says in his review, which I happened to find just as I was Googling around to prepare for our conversation. I'll read a little bit of it because I think it expresses a similar thought. He says, I've seen Barcelona twice. It seemed deeper to me the second time. It appears at first to be about the casual lives of young men trying to launch their careers, but eventually it reveals darker depths and meaning. What it also does is give voice to a generation. And he goes on to say something that's quite striking given his career as a film critic for, for many decades. I've seen a lot of amazing things on screen before, but never something quite like this. And there are few people who've ever lived who had seen as many movies as Roger Ebert. So for him to say that this was something really special and distinctive is an incredible tribute and one that I think is accurate. Again, watching recently and appreciating these patriotic and religious and moral themes more than I had in the past, it was really quite difficult for me to think of any other film that approaches them in a similar way, certainly any other American film. It does have artistic precedents, but those precedents are literary, especially the literature of the late 19th century, much more than they're found in cinema or popular culture more broadly. Yes, I think that's right. And I think altogether you see what would it mean to put the wasps from the novel into cinema? It's not easy. And in a way, when you do that, they lose some of their prominence. Cinema is democratized so much faster even than America did. In a way, it becomes harder to recognize. But it is the case that these are people that you would have seen taken much more seriously and who would have presented themselves as characters much more publicly. It is of the essence of both religion and patriotism that they make very strong, very public claims. Both of them require that what is inside, what is of the heart, should come outside, should be said and done in an unequivocal way. Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of the tension that Stillman is interested in, and that really runs through the whole of WASP culture. I'm reading now a new book, or it will be released, I think, next week by uh, Michael Knox Barron. It's kind of a psychohistory of what he calls the WASPs, but Stillman would call the urban haute bourgeoisie. And one of the running themes, which is consistent between this book and Stillman's work, is the tension between the public nature of the claims of religion and patriotism and the essentially inward and private aspects of WASP culture that deplored public demonstration and vulgarity and show of, of any kind. And I think one of the reasons that that culture is easier to depict in literature is that literature thrives on interiority. It can explore the tension between what is thought or felt and what is said or done much more easily than film. Film, at least superficially, calls on characters who will dominate the screen. You have to want to watch them and see them. And I think it's very hard for characters who are drawn from that wasp culture to do that. And Stillman, I think especially in this film, even more than Barcelona, captures that. He gives us these characters whom we want to watch, as we must, because we have to sit through the 90 minutes or two hours, whatever the duration of the film is, but who don't want to be watched or who don't seek the kind of visibility that film in a very literal sense seems to require. Yes, I think that's right. The public character of novels is always ambiguous. After all, these things are read in privacy. Movies are usually watched or were until recently together and publicly. 
the reactions of an audience are considered to be very important to the experience of cinema. And there's no correlative of that in novel reading, since nobody sits around reading either a shorter Jane Austen or a longer Tolstoy novel in company. This is quite rare. So putting these sorts of burdens on the revealing of soul, the scrutinizing of conscience, that it should be done in actions on a big screen without counterfeiting everything in the process, i.e. having recourse to imposture or pretense, is indeed very, very difficult. And I think that's partly why Whitstillman is drawn to comedy, even though, as you say, and as Ebert astutely noticed, there's a lot that's dark just at the edge of these comic things. I think this recourse to comedy is partly because only by making fun of these earnest people can they be tolerable, so to speak. It's the only thing that can justify them as protagonists, since, as you say, they don't want to be protagonists in the first place. They're both of them trying to get lost, in fact, in organizations, in a business corporation, in the Navy, to be a lieutenant junior grade, do better at it, be confirmed in one's worth as a man by it, but as much as possible, not stand out. Indeed, it's orders not to stand out. (laughs) But both of them feel that confronted with Europe, they have to stand out in a certain sense because they have to stand up for America and for themselves. And they do so in ways that accord with their characters. One of them is a bore. The other one is a prig, more or less what the insults they throw at one another. But it's not merely this standing up for themselves and for America that makes them interesting because now they're part of a story. You can see what's happening and therefore can reveal their souls in a way against their own will. But I think it's also part of Witt Stillman's gentle criticism of his social class. Interiority is not that good for you. At some point, scrutinizing your conscience and what we call navel-gazing, skepticism, are identical. These young men are, in a way, too shrinking. You see with both of them, indeed, that they lack confidence, that they misjudge how other people treat them. That is to say, they misjudge their benefactors as critics because they lack confidence. And, of course, that's partly because of the fall, if you will, or at least the slide of the class. But it's not just that. It has to do with the idealism of young men. You can't be an idealistic young man that is one who looks up to something great, perhaps America, perhaps Benjamin Franklin, and not be cowed in a way by that, not be, not humiliated, but humbled by the comparison. These young men are confronted with a world of people who are shockingly ignorant, but supremely confident about themselves. And they pale in the comparisons and indeed blush, but they are also in a certain strange sense more realistic because they are not so full of themselves. They have to become somewhat fuller of themselves in the conflict, but only to do so by proving themselves, not simply by demanding for themselves the attention that you could say is typical of cinema or at any rate of television. You could say that these two young men are the opposites of the generation of therapeutic morality, of reality TV or of social media. And perhaps that goes too far, their shyness, But it is, I think, revealing of the fundamental human phenomena much better because it avoids, for the most part, imposture. And so Stillman somehow both criticizes the class he belongs to and advances its claims in a decent way. In a way, even the names of the characters, they're so silly, Fred and Ted. But in another sense, Frederick and Theodore are very waspy names, and indeed they have an antiquity to them, so to speak. So both things are there at once in different aspects, the seriousness of the idealism and the silliness that always hangs on young men who know so little about the world and can do even less. And these dualities seem to extend to the depiction of America and Fred and Ted as Americans as well. So on the one hand, they're shown as not knowing very much about their country, and they are a little bit baffled when confronted by Europeans who seem very knowledgeable about the various problems in America. In one scene, Ted is embarrassed at a picnic of 
Spanish intellectuals by describing American foreign policy in the Cold War, by comparing American foreign policy to an ant farm. And one of them points out quite reasonably, this is absurd and a little bit obscene. We're not talking about ants, we're, we're talking about people. But at the same time, it turns out that even though their knowledge of the historical and strategic facts is a little bit shaky, these Americans are knowledgeable in morality. Their instincts are good and decent and right. And the reverse is true of the Europeans who have a lot of information that they're prepared to cite, although it turns out that a lot of that isn't true either, but are morally corrupt and irresponsible. And that's represented by the character Ramon, who's the boyfriend of one of the women they pursue, who's some kind of left-wing journalist and writes the article that accuses Ted of working for the CIA leading to the assassination attempt. And Ramon, I think, does not intend or even imagine that any violence will result from this article. He's simply irresponsible, but he too is chastened to discover that words have meaning. And if you accuse someone of working for the CIA during the Cold War on the front page of a European newspaper, there are violent men who are going to take that very seriously. So in that relationship too, Stillman is interested in these dualities and inversions in which American innocence turns out to be a form of seriousness and European sophistication turns out to be childish and irresponsible. Yes, I think that's right. You can see in a certain way there reflected the relative status of America and Europe end of the 20th century. We're no longer in the days of Henry James when the European powers, at least together, were much greater than America. Now America is much greater and that paternalism, of course, is reflected in this vulgar comparison of the world with an ant farm. But that paternalism is morally serious. That is to say, these young men may be ignorant in many ways, but they are not frivolous. They are not given to either shocking things or to indifference. They take moral things as they should be taken. They are preparing for adulthood. They're taking maybe too much on their shoulders in trying to defend America, but they do understand that that's part of the job, as it were. That If you're an American, you should be an ambassador for America. It's part of democracy, it's part of America, and they do not shirk that duty. Having lived in Europe at different points in my life, I have a special, not hatred exactly, but a special annoyance for the kind of Americans who move to Europe or perhaps to other parts of the country and then make a social career of apologizing for America, even if in certain cases the apologies are entirely justified. I have what's probably the old-fashioned feeling that you save that for members of the family. You save that for discussions behind closed doors. It's not your social capital. And I think Fred and Ted would, would appreciate or at least share that sentiment. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think it follows indeed from the short knowledge of certain limits of human nature. You cannot, by making speeches, transform the world. And then so you should be always somewhat careful and thoughtful of what you're saying. Of course, having a kind of intellectual pretension being given to the importance of speech is heartbreaking for an American because America won't care. So there's a temptation to take revenge on America. If the country won't listen to you, you might as well talk trash. It's supposed to be, of course, at the same time, a show of superiority of confirming European prejudices about Americans. But there was much to be said for those prejudices when Europeans had power. But having lost that power and the way it was lost in self-destruction, I think put an end to any serious claim on the part of any European community that they should be taken seriously about politics. That's right. But I think Stillman goes even beyond that in a way that is distinctive. So we talked a few weeks ago about the talented Mr. Ripley, which is about probably more than anything else, the extraordinary beauty of Italy and of the old world in capital letters writ large. 
But Stillman goes beyond that to defend not only the moral and political, but also the aesthetic value of America. And Barcelona, it occurs to me, is a very rare American film set in Europe that does not dwell on the aesthetic glories of European civilization. And in fact, there's a scene early in the film when Fred has just arrived in Barcelona and Ted takes him on the obligatory tourist journey, pointing out the various landmarks. And Fred's response to each of them is, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's also Stillman's response. In that scene, he doesn't show us any of the landmarks, as I think almost any other American director would have done, and certainly as the talented Mr. Ripley does in an extraordinarily beautiful way. I mean, it's a, it's a tourism ad. What Stillman does show us as an aesthetic exemplar is the city of Chicago, which Ted insists, I think correctly, is the most beautiful American big city. And then also in the final scene, a lake resort outside Chicago belonging to the Boynton family where Fred and Ted take their new wives. So it's one thing to say, and maybe it's bold even if it shouldn't be, that America has a moral and political claim over Europe in the 20th century. But it's even bolder and more provocative to make a claim for the aesthetic superiority of America. And Stillman, I think, is admirably willing to do that. I don't, I don't even know if I agree with what he's doing, but I admire the artistic courage and, again, the genuine patriotic sentiment that leads him to present Chicago and its environs as aesthetically preferable to a capital of old Europe. I think that's right. I think that this is the strongest case in his career for democracy. And it does have to include this aesthetic aspect of things that I would say that the European cities are all far more beautiful than American cities. But I would admit that that beauty is too tied up with corruption to really be defensible. You can't go through a European city without learning about all sorts of atrocities. It would be the height of madness to ignore this, and perhaps, you know, that's, that's a kind of pleasant madness as when one is a tourist, perhaps, but that's the adventure of a day, if we can even call it that. America is different, but largely better, and that political and moral superiority, a marked absence of this cruel corruption, is tied up with the aesthetics. It's more democratic friendly. It does more justice to what we have in common as human beings, because it tries less to have some people humiliate all the other people with their greatness. There's more than a little of that hinted at in the movie. We see that the whole plot in a way hinges on an accident. This tour of the beauties of Barcelona that is increasingly of less interest to the people on it as to us, given the shooting, as you suggested, ends when the young Navy lieutenant is so offended by the insults of the locals that he wants to somehow uh, deface a graffiti, which is itself defacement, which calls the Americans NATO pigs. This is after he has been called a fascist, and he is rightly self-righteous about that, since after all, it was Europeans who made the fascism and the Americans who stopped it. And while he's trying the, in his silly, nonsensical way, this is always the way in with Stillman movies, when people try to make big gestures, they fail of the means to it, which shows a kind of unseriousness, a lack of experience. It's a very good way of showing the comedy of youth. Like we said about Metropolitan, the two young men who daringly try to save the damsel in distress turn out not even to be able to drive a car or have a car to drive. So, so here, this guy wants to deface a graffiti with felt-tip pen. And that is also kind of a remark about the character of filmmaking. One shouldn't shout. One works in cinema with a felt-tip pen, not with the spray for graffiti. It's just something that one has to accept. And while he's trying to do this kind of very morally affirming deed, they run into girls that they will be chasing with more effect for the rest of the movie. Those girls are dressed in aristocratic costumes. They're going off to a party. That's Europe, right? That's what Europe has to offer, aristocracy. That's something Americans long for, can't help thinking about, but can never have. 
And the movie shows that there's a lot that's rotten in that aristocracy or even in the posture of it in our times. That is to say, some of these girls who look beautiful turn out to be quite wicked. And aside from that, it also reveals that Europeans have Americanized far more than they are willing to let on in their hatred. When I was a kid in college, I noticed that most of the Europeans I knew who thought they were clever, intellectual, cultured, and hated America, loved to listen to Bob Dylan to really stick it to the man. <laughs> That's very ambiguous, to say the least. So also with these girls who like disco music and such things, but also despise Americans. And perhaps the most hilarious thing about this sort of cultural contretemps or confrontation even, these girls despise the American boys because they don't listen to jazz, the sign of real culture. <laughs> right. It hadn't occurred to me before, but you make a great point that the, the cultural glories of old Europe appear only in the form of costume. These who are wearing 18th century brocade dresses on their way to a party of some kind, but they end up spending the evening in a disco listening to American or at least American-inspired music. So Stillman gestures toward the absurdity of these pretensions of cultural superiority, which when it comes to lived culture, rely heavily on American sources and American influences. Even the frumpier priggish of the two, who is not very involved in the nightlife or in the more sensational part of life, comments on this fact that it says, you don't understand, Spain is different, the sexual revolution hit hard later here and much harder. The world turned upside down and never turned right side up again. He's aware that somehow Americans are at fault for this, that democracy was exported from America in the sense of this incredibly rebellious young generation that simply wiped out generations of habits and social norms and strictures, especially, of course, that this is American freedom that is coming to Europe in a typically revolutionary way. He doesn't go far enough to think that maybe, you know, it was pretty bad in America, but it's much worse in Europe. And maybe these people are just not ready for it in some sense. But he is aware that somehow this comes from America and these people who despise America don't even realize that, so to speak. That is to say that there is something incredibly spurious about their very claim to independence from and contempt for America. They do not understand their own situation. This is not to say that European habits come from America. Indeed, even American ideas, once they hit Europe, they tend to change to fit European standards, that Europeans are perpetually trying to restore some of the prestige of that beauty, the distinctive quality of Europe. And in this case, it's this Ramon fellow you mentioned who starts out as a journalist and whose disappointment with left-wing politics leads him to a rampant promiscuity. And that leads to the great joke, the great Witzelman joke that it is well known that anti-Americanism comes from impotence, <laughs> at least in Europe. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, European responsibility, especially in the cultured classes, had a lot to do with the fact that Europe lost all its power. And compared to Americans, Europeans were impotent in a very important sense. Politically, they were no longer men. And so in a sense, they were forcibly privatized by humiliation, if nothing else. These deeper concerns always come out in jokes. And nevertheless, the jokes do have a relentless coherence. As you were saying, even the joke about the ant farm, one of the Europeans looks at the Americans and says, this is a terrible way to look at human beings. How could you? That is the position of the weak person complaining. The Americans are innocent because of their very strength, which makes them confident. They didn't intend any kind of harm. They didn't intend any kind of humiliation. This priggish fellow was only picking the ants because it's such a childish example. He was trying to diffuse the situation to make the culture clash less violent, more trivial. But he didn't realize that in the process, he was trivializing the passions by which these Europeans define themselves. That is to say, maybe there's nothing to being Spanish, except hating Americans. In a certain sense, that's going too far, of course. But there is a deep connection between these two things, since, after all, there's no particular reason for people in Barcelona to care about America. They should be caring about Barcelona, about Catalan things or Spanish things or European things. 
their strong feelings have no political or experiential basis. They are largely pathological, that is to say. Since you mentioned impotence, maybe we should talk about the sex and gender politics of this movie, which are quite interesting because on the one hand, as you describe, Stillman is clearly defending a particular version of manliness, which in certain ways is represented by the United States as a global power, but also by these American characters. On the other hand, it is a very gentle and some would say effete form of manliness. After all, Ted is a salesman, is basically a nerd, and Fred does wear a military uniform, but he's not a tough guy. He's shown as working essentially in an office job himself. His naval uniform is the equivalent of the suit that Ted wears when he goes to work. So if on the one hand, there is something that I think is rightly described as conservative, and some people would probably call reactionary about Stillman's defense of manliness, there's also something gentle and patrician about it that some people might find unsatisfying for other reasons. And again, thinking back to this Michael Knox Barron book that I've been reading, that also is very typical of the duality of the wasp soul. This longing on the one hand to be a real man, which led figures like Theodore Roosevelt to go west and play act as cowboys and ranchers, but also to be a gentleman. And these characters are gentlemen, but they are democratic gentlemen, unlike the hierarchical aristocratic understanding of what it means to be a superior kind of man that is still, I think, lurking in the background for the Spanish characters, even though it would be very unfashionable for them to endorse it explicitly. Yeah, I think that's right. All the left-wing politics of the Spanish in the movie, like most of left-wing politics in Europe in the post-war situation, is a complete sham. These people have no interest in Marx and have learned nothing from Marx or anything of that kind. But their hatred of the bourgeois does reveal them to be heirs of the reactionaries of the 19th century, who hated nothing more than the liberal left-wing victorious French Revolution, the making of the bourgeois power. And one can go back and read letters and accounts from 400 years ago of life in Spain and the ugly promiscuity of the upper classes. One can also see it in Barcelona in the setting of the 1980s. Certain mores are far harder to change than something more superficial, which in a certain sense a democracy is. That is to say, because these are not Democrats who really stand up for themselves or their own country or for anything. So they didn't invent this democracy. They didn't somehow make it for themselves. It's not really their own. It's not an experience. It's more of an opinion or a fashion or a convenience. But besides these deep realities of European life that have not entirely changed, there's also the sense that maybe there is a new beginning. After all, the movie does show you three of these Spanish girls marry Americans and move on to the new world. This is part of the American promise, after all. Where they eat hamburgers and discover that they're delicious. Exactly. At, uh, you can sit somewhere and grill and live behind a lot of the imposture and enjoy some of the more natural joys that are available to Americans when they are seen not in their televised or mass-produced copies, but as people practice them in their ordinary way. And that you could say, you know, is imperialism with Stillman, these Americans. <laughs> but in fact, it's a gentle reminder that there's a reason so much of American life has spread even to Europe, that there is a natural desire for democracy, not merely the goings-on of culture classes or of elites that run administration or prestigious institutions or all of these things, that there is a kind of democracy that has nothing to do with the sophisticated stuff or the summit of politics and society. Aside from these strange defects of the Europeans, we should say that the movie is far gentler because, as you say, Wood Stillman is himself a gentleman. 
He does not criticize the Spanish as I have done. I do not make a pretense that I am a gentleman. I can say these things in a clear and perhaps too sharp a way. I hope I do not offend sensibilities, but I think perhaps the comedy excuses some of this. You are right, I think, to say that the protagonists themselves are closer to with Stillman's sensibility. I would say that the decent one of them, Taylor Nichols, even looks like Whit Stillman. Is a good stand-in. And of course, one has to wonder, how does he write these comedies? He's such a nice guy. Well, he has Chris Eigerman, who is an alter ego. He is not much of a wasp, but he's a very sharp and a very funny guy. He stumbles over himself all the time because of his arrogance and because of certain moral defects. But he does have true insights that are quite critical and perhaps closer to the tone in which I have been discussing European society or Spain in this conversation. You're more on the decent side. You're more like the other of the two. I bow to you in this regard and try to follow your lead in the way we talk about these things. The nice guy of the two does say fish stinks after three days, suggestion that his cousin should not overstay his welcome. And then the cousin says, you know, I tend to stink from the beginning. And I feel some of that odor is true of my remarks as well. I don't think for all the criticism that we have extracted from the film, I don't think it is fundamentally anti-European or anti-Spanish. And even the character Ramon, who is responsible for this terrible violence, even though he doesn't intend it, is shown to apologize to Fred. He realizes that he has done wrong. And although he can't quite bring himself to take full responsibility, he does acknowledge his culpability in the incident. So Stillman himself is gentle in his criticism. This is a man who I believe is married to a French woman and lives in Paris. And although the Spanish women in the film are shown as moving with their husbands to America, they don't become less Spanish. They don't reject who they are. So there's always in Stillman's work, as well as in his characters, this charming naivete and optimism that ultimately we can learn to get along and we can appreciate what is good in other people and other societies while also laughing at what is bad. And sometimes, as with the manliness of Fred and Ted, this may seem insufficient and even a little bit pathetic. There's also something admirable in it. And I think Stillman is inviting us to admire this possibility, or at least to consider this possibility, rather than simply to dismiss it, as is the temptation for all of us cynical moderns, whether we are American, European, or otherwise. I think that's exactly right. And it's the sort of movie that is likely to improve people, not by saving their souls or committing them to the great national cause, but by gently suggesting an improvement in character, which at least must have this character, that is to say, be a bit comical. And that in the the plot itself reveals to mean two things. One of them is you need to allow at least people you trust to make fun of you a little, to show you something about yourself. And the other one is you need to be patient. You have to wait things out, not be in such a hurry because you will make the wrong decisions or treat people in a bad way. But if you wait things out, as you say, even the crazy Spanish journalist promiscuous guy who instigates terrorism, he's not really all that guilty and he's not irredeemable, nor does he become a sainted figure at the end. He is not entirely inclined to take responsibility for himself, which shows that he too is a Democrat a man who was pretending to be a kind of Casanova, in fact, does not believe that the power of words matters that much. He doesn't believe that his words really are guilty because words are not deeds after all. He's a Democrat too. An aristocrat might die for his words. A Democrat wouldn't do that. So everybody can be part of the great modern democracy after all. And I think that in that sense, Whitstillman starts from a fundamental fact. Why should this come to a happy end? Because Europe and America do not have any essential conflict. 
Maybe that was true in the great wars of the 20th century, for example, but it's not true anymore. It, that is over. And so there can be a kind of reconciliation between Europe and America, and it will happen on American terms. The invasion of popular culture as much of, as of capitalism, Europe proves that beyond a doubt. What's unique to Stillman is that he is very gentle about it, and that is because he's always trying to improve the character of this reconciliation from a democratic point of view. As you say, his gentlemen are Democrats. This guy in the Navy, he does not have any obsession with leadership or with impressing people so that he stands out. He has the WASP belief in service, but none of the expectation of leadership. He would like to serve in a small way. His idea is to dedicate himself in a moral sense. You see that these people are brave men because of the way the movie gets serious. One morning as they are quarreling, they hear an explosion and they realize that's the USO club. And they rush there in the semi-abie. That's a brave thing to do. It's not a great show of courage. It's the most amount of courage that is compatible with comedy, perhaps. It is gentle comedy, but it is an undoubted show of courage. From there on, things get a bit trickier. And you see them do an all-night vigil for a dead serviceman. And they turn to religion and the kind of patriotic fellow feeling to protect, as it were, the identity and the memory of this young man whom they had never seen before. This makes them friends and other servicemen and with the American consul there. And those bonds are shown to last later down to the wedding scene at the end. So you have both the funeral and the wedding. This is a very important thing for a comedy, right? Because it shows the passing of the generations and how we deal with man's mortality in a humane way. But they also forge relationships between people simply on the strength of their being American. You know, our discussion has convinced me, I think, that this is Stillman's best film, which is not what I would have said if you had asked me before I watched it and before we started talking about it. Because I think that of all his movies, it maintains the best balance between these comic and tragic themes. Unlike Metropolitan and The Last Days of Disco, both of which I like very much for different reasons, there's really something at stake here. And it's that risk, it's the prospect of real loss that anchors the comedy. Without that, and you said at the beginning of our conversation that only people, only people who like Stillman talk about Stillman, those who don't simply ignore him. And this is, I think, the reason for that. Without the tragic element that's most prominent in Barcelona, it can seem so airy and artificial that it just floats away. This movie really works even though it retains the comic and literary qualities for which Stillman is famous and for which he's loved by those who love them, who love him. I think that's right. And I think for that reason, it shows best Stillman's insistence that you should always, as Burke might have put it, you have to dress up human nature in the clothes of decency. You have to draw a veil over certain things that may be of great interest to us, especially, of course, comedy and tragedy revealed to us the shameless and the shocking. But is that conducive to a decent life? Is it a way of thinking about our affairs that furthers our affairs? Stillman seems better able to deal with that. He knows what our passions and proclivities are and wants to better them in a modest way, including without drawing attention to himself or without self-importance. He commits the greatest sin an American can commit. He refuses to be his own salesman, so to speak. As I said, to the extent to which I can figure it out, both protagonists are stand-ins for him, but their very division reveals something about the division in him. As you say, Wood Stillman's a really patriotic American guy with the sentiments and opinions you'd expect in his social class, passionately held irrespective of circumstances or favor, but he's also quite soft about these things. He's not an activist of any kind. There's no hint of vulgarity in, in this usual way. He's able to see that there's something wrong 
he's not fit for the job, so to speak. And so in a sense, as you say, he is a man who has chosen to live in Europe rather than America, although as an American rather than as a European, he's in a funny situation himself. And these two characters, they do become serious and they become serious through manliness, through business and eventually through marriage. This is again, why this is the only complete romantic comedy. It's the only time when you get with Stillman's view of marriage. None of the other comedies do that. Do they get, that is to say, people married? I think there, you could say there's an exception for his latest uh, Austin adaptation, but it's only partial. Uh, whereas here you see, as you would in Austin or Shakespeare, three marriages happen. He's very discreet about that too, to a fault perhaps. He understands that this is what seriousness would require in people. Now, these two protagonists, the lieutenant, seems like he's the usual kind of American that we know from Tocqueville. You cannot talk America with an American because however much you admire America, want to make some criticism here and there, and an American cannot bear that kind of criticism. But in presenting this man in caricature as Fred, the Chris Eigenman character, he nevertheless reveals that this touchiness of the American comes precisely from the fact that he is too aware of his good intentions. He is, as Chris Eigenman keeps saying, the man in this uniform died fighting fascism. That moral fact can never be forgotten. That's why more people keep going to that uniform. They need to know what it means to be a man, what it means to be a good man. And that's what they turn to. And so you can never take that lightly. Can you think of another film from the perspective of male characters that presents marriage as an honorable and necessary accomplishment. We have, of course, this whole genre of romantic comedy, which, of course, extends back to Shakespeare, but it is almost always, at least in its modern form, from the perspective of women. Can you think of another film from the perspective of male characters in which marriage is not a victory in the sense that it corresponds to a defeat for someone else, but an accomplishment in the way that Stillman depicts it here? It's a wonderful question. And I think this is only true of old Hollywood romantic comedies. Right. right? Maybe the Philadelphia story shows you that, especially that was C.K. Dexter Haven. That was the thing I had in mind. But it's hard to think maybe there are some of any films in color <laughs> that make this suggestion. Yeah, I think it's because it uh, would require on the part of a man a certain awareness of human things, and especially of those things that are private, that are more associated with women. As I was saying, C.K. Dexter Haven in The Philadelphia Story is the passive character, but others suspect him of machinations, of unmanly behavior, that is to say, nobody treats him like a gentleman. It's easy to do because he's played by Cary Grant, who was a little shy of perfect, just enough to make people love him without resentment. And so you can pile a lot of faults on his character without ruining the drama ever so little. But that's what you would have to do. At the end of the story, it turns out that he engineered himself back into marriage. He realized that he failed the once and must do it right. But without that notion, this is very, very hard to do. You would have to do something like, I would say, The Merchant of Venice, where you can have young men like Bassanio trying to get married, but who don't quite know how to and need a woman of superior ability to help them along if they are indeed lovable and good husbands. One sees that with Cary Grant in The Awful Truth, which I think is the best comedy ever made in America. But it's a, a rare show of elegance, that is to say, of, of the superiority of a woman in non-obtrusive ways. It's entirely the opposite of the idea of the superiority of women that has prevailed in the last generation or two of romantic comedies. Yes, in which the suggestion is that the purpose of marriage and the need of men for women is about being tamed. These are beasts who need rules and restraints. They need elevation. His wife, he, without his realizing it, is Irene Dunn, who was a classically trained singer of rare accomplishment. She needs a husband who will harmonize with her literally. 
She doesn't need an American who sings American songs like Oklahoma, <laughs> Home on the Range. Not right. that. She needs somebody who will at least appreciate her elevation. So it's not exactly about taming. It's about sublimation, as Nietzsche would say, or about spiritualization of erotic passion. Right. Which is different to Stillman's depiction which is not about constraining these energies that would otherwise be out of control. It's more platonic. It's more souls that are missing completing each other than the imposition of salutary restraint. And that's a very old-fashioned idea and I think accounts for why, as we've been saying, some people just can't bear these movies. Yeah, I think it requires seeing that there is something somewhat laughable in men, that especially American men are simpletons. They do not have the sophistication that comes with the roles of various strata of society that were acquired and taught in certain ways, even to children in various European countries. What made it so distinctly different that an Italian man or and the German man and the French man and an English man were as they were and unlike each other. This was, of course, only true of America in the South, and that didn't turn out so well, although Americans can never quite get enough of it. The romance of the South, I'm not sure, is entirely dead today, but certainly, say, before World War II, it was still alive and kicking. This other change, I think, that has come is that the self-assertion of men, of the presumption of manly vigor, was exhausted. And I think that in that sense, Whit Stillman was very much aware of the character of the times, that despite, you could say, the publicity in the 80s and the 90s and since, American young men are not paragons of energy. They are not untrammeled violence asserting itself unless it is shackled. If anything, they're shy and retiring. Think about all the people who more or less forcefully criticize feminism or women in America now. That is not the position of confident men in possession of themselves. It's often quite whiny. This is not to say that many things said are not true, but that's irrelevant to the consideration. Those kinds of men are much more like the Chris Eigerman characters one sees in with Stillman movies. Those complaints come from a deeply wounded upbringing. And you see indeed with these two characters that in Barcelona, they're kind of shocked by women. They're not quite ready for all of this, and it takes some achievement for them to figure things out. And to some extent, that's only possible because they have jobs, because the military and the corporation work give them something to aspire to, to prove themselves that is independent of their longing for women and allows other men to confirm them in their strengths and therefore keep them going on their path, since there is so much less certainty with women than there is with a job. And so I think much of the travail of these young men with certain modifications would speak very much to a situation as we see now. So many young men who can't get jobs and can't get love. Well, Whit Stillman's movies are all about that. And there's almost nothing else that treats this directly, if in a very gentle and subtle way. So, you know, we, we have had a long conversation about Barcelona, and I think there are so many more other things to say. We can only invite our audience to watch or watch the movie again and talk about it and discover these sorts of things and wonder whether, again, the view of the yuppie 80s that you get in with cinema movies, whether it's not really adequate to describing the vulnerabilities and the desires of young men and also in other movies, young women, especially as days of disco. And since we're wrapping up, I'll just offer this as a closing observation. Although this movie is set in a particular moment, it's described in the title card as, I think, the last decade of the Cold War and the bombing of the USO Club in Barcelona that's depicted occurred in 1987. So it, it can be dated fairly precisely. It shares with metropolitan, a vagueness about its period that is charming and makes it rewarding to watch many years later in the way that films that are very clearly set at a precise moment sometimes aren't. 
And it may be that as with Metropolitan, this had something to do with budgetary concerns when making Metropolitan, Stillman couldn't afford period costumes. So even though the action is set in about 1970, the characters are wearing clothing and the cars and other settings are clearly from the late 80s. So too with Barcelona, there's a timeless quality that makes it feel perhaps not so different to the world of Henry James. And I suspect, despite everything that's happened in the last 25 or more years, not so very different to today. And when I was in the expatriate phase of my own life, I knew people and had experiences that resembled those Stillman depicts, even if some of the visual signifiers were rather different. I think that's very true. And so I think we can leave our audience with this thought that would Stillman movies seem to be nostalgic, longing, and somehow always returning to this theme, the strange case of the disappearance of the American gentleman. But he also suggests that there is a strange staying power to that human type, that the American gentleman is not, in fact, easily wiped out. It speaks to a desire for dignity and achievement that opens these young men up to love and marriage to reflection on the importance of duty and work and, of course, about God. I don't see how that is going away, in fact. I think he's certainly right about this. Might be why there is also thematic timelessness, so to speak. Well, on that optimistic note, which is consistent with the optimism of the film, perhaps we should wrap up. Yes. Sam, thank you very much for joining me again. I believe we have not quite got the runtime of the movie in our commentary, but we're pretty close. (laughs) And we have followed the sharper, more comic half, more serious and grounded second half and brought things around to a fairly decent and uplifting happy end. And if this does not prove we are good students of Whit Stillman, I'm not sure what possibly could. (laughs) Well, it's always a pleasure. And I think that listeners will find that we have taken the lessons of Stillman very seriously. All the best meanwhile, and let's find some more movies to talk about. There are always more. Bye-bye, Sam. Bye-bye.